The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and this is episode 33. So we got a new one here, well kind of new. Um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, I got an email from a listener who had some comments and thoughts about uh, the podcast overall and one of the reasons I started this podcast was to give an opportunity for people to uh, meet each other and for people, I say younger, I'm not necessarily saying age-wise, but people who are newer to the industry to gain some exposure and et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I invited this person to be a guest today. So with that, I'm going to introduce Claudia Peterson, who is the ATD at the Wallace out in California. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I can't believe I made it through that whole thing in one take. Um, <laughs> I think we, we, we could stop now. I'd be happy because, you know, I didn't stumble over my own words. Okay. So you're going to get the same question that everyone gets out of the gate, which is, who are you? Uh, yeah. As you said, I am the ATD at uh, full name, the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Beverly Hills, California. Um and uh, at least in the scope of what an ATD means in that context is um, a lot of crew management, because um, unlike a regional theater, we don't do a lot of uh, building our own stuff. Um, so it's a lot of crew management, um, dealing with uh, stage and scenery for the many, many different types of shows that come through. Um and yeah, uh, and then also I still am currently a stagehand um, working, especially in these pandemic times when there isn't a lot of other stuff to do, uh, very occasionally working uh, with Bigger Hammer uh, as a stagehand. Ah, um, uh, see, so you hid that from me. You, 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 you buried the lead <laughs> that you work with uh, Bigger Hammer. Yeah. Yep, uh, yeah, so I, I know. Phil. I was very excited when Phil was on. <laughs> yep. Yep. Phil Van Hest. Yep. And uh, Boxer, who is the owner of Bigger Hammer, is a good friend of mine and mm-hmm. uh, argent supporter of the Event Safety Alliance and other industry programs. So it's cool to actually talk with someone who gets to work with them and give me all the good dirt. <laughs> I don't know that I have too much dirt. I haven't worked very much with uh, with Boxer, but um, oh, insert but, uh, owner joke here. Well, you know, <laughs> we don't let him out of the office. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. So how how did you get into the industry? Um. Honestly, yeah, we got to throw that one all the way back to high school. Um, because I was one of those kids who was just like, let's do theater stuff, like you know, tech tech crew um in high school um and you know was just sort of like this is this is fun uh you know really enjoyed doing it um and then 
uh, honestly, I have to admit that it is uh, Wicked's fault um, because I was on a band trip in high school uh, in LA. And so we went to see Wicked at the Pantages and it was my first time seeing it. Um, and there's, you know, the part where there's the dragon puppet that like lives on the proscenium. And, uh, I was just like staring at that because noticed some people moving up there and like realizing that like two stagehands were going to go operate the puppet and just being like, oh, oh, that's a job that you can do. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's pretty much the, uh, the formative moment that made me realize that I wanted to do theater as a career um but yeah and then uh it throughout throughout a lot of high school I was doing audio stuff and it was really funny because you didn't really know what I was doing um like we had uh got like a new uh set of microphones and the accoutrement for that and still didn't really know how to use it and so there was a lot of just like uh using dashboard deities to like hope that we just didn't fuck up a show um so basically the normal job of any audio professional yeah but with like a lot more uh prayer and superstition and a lot less skill and experience um i know that 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 does describe a lot of the sound people i know (laughs) Uh, i can't wait for the hate mail on that one to come in Um, but yeah, and then, um, the thing that really got me into, cause I've spent the vast majority of my career doing more carpentry things. Um, and so then the thing that got me to that was I, um, cause I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And so I did the Illinois All-State Theater Festival, uh, my senior year of high school. Um, and the show was Hairspray. Uh, so of course it was gigantic cause they were just like, we want it to look exactly like Broadway. And I think it was even the first time that um, they had released the rights to a non-professional or even like the first time that they had done it, like not on Broadway. So it was like kind of a big deal. Um, But so it was the thing. And I had, you know, having had done audio most of uh, in the past of my high school career, I was just like, oh, yeah, like I'll be on the audio team. Um, But they started the process where like everybody was building the scenery. And so I was actually like pretty bummed to have to go join the audio team um and so that was the like aha moment of i want to do carpentry uh and then i went to college for it um at uh the the theater school at depaul university okay chicago um yeah and that's uh that's the origin story um was there a specific uh, discipline in college that you, you focused on or was it general? Was it, you know, some schools have a technical technical direction program or lighting or, you know, they get fairly focused versus a broad design technology for theater, performing arts, you know, type thing. How, mm-hmm. how specific did they get in, in that curriculum? Um. And to tie this in a little bit with rigging, <laughs> was rigging part of that curriculum or was it a, Oh, you learned that by doing shows. Um, with regards to, Oh, I should back up and answer the first part of that question. Um, it was, uh, it was conservatory. So it did have very, very specific, um, areas of focus. 
Um, so there was, yeah, so there was stage management, sound design, lighting design. Um, uh, my, yeah, the like the sort of technical director one was called theater technology. Um, but yeah, but it was much more like carpentry and technical direction, um, acting, directing, um, costume, uh, costume design and costume technology, which were two separate majors and were the only ones that you were allowed to double major in because there was, that was the only one where there was enough crossover. Um, but although they did also have like a, like if you wanted to be a broad spectrum, uh, theater person, there was a theater thing. Um, and so, yeah, so everybody, and they didn't have, the only graduate programs that they had were in directing and acting. Um, so that was a thing that made it really accessible to get a lot of hands-on experience. Um, as, apart from working on the shows, there was a lot of opportunity to do um, work study. Um, but yeah, so in the theater technology um classes uh we actually had classes that were called construction and rigging <laughs> so like got very specific i think we did uh like for one one or two years we pretty much were using uh jake larum's book yeah um, as the textbook uh so yeah so and, I, and oh, there's oh. nothing wrong with that uh, <laughs> yeah jay's book is <laughs> A wonderful book. My only knock on Jay's book ever was the fact that the variables he used for math did not work for my brain. Mm. It's the same equations. It's just what you what he chose to use to call X or tension or leg force or whatever the variable was it just didn't work for my brain and my thought process and that very early on is when i was starting to put together my training stuff was to say all right i'm going to teach it this way but the important thing is for people to understand the concept and not the specific term which is counterproductive or counter to what i always say which is you want to be as specific as you can but his his there's so much information there and i still refer to that book and a lot of my training uh stuff comes from his book like uh the data on ropes and the efficiency yeah. of knots is from jay's book mm -hmm. so it, it it is a wonderful book and i'm glad to hear that his family slash estate however you want to phrase it is in the process of uh coming out with a new edition with some additional uh support from other riggers so Hopefully yeah. that will be out sometime soon and another class can use it as a textbook. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, the thing that's interesting is kind of looking back on that and how it all felt like so theoretical. Um, cause like, uh, cause you really did kind of have to, um, at least they're like doing, doing the rigging on the shows was, largely done you know like if you were the tv for a show like obviously you had to you know be making line set schedules and making sure especially because it was the um the fly house theater that we used was a hundred years old um and so it had really low capacity arbors um so like 
had some of that, like, you know, dealing with the challenges, but like, unless you were a theater work study, um, you didn't really have the opportunity to be like the person who's actually like operating the rail or throwing weight um, or any of that stuff. So uh, I didn't actually, so I managed to escape my uh, college educational career without having ever um, operated a line set or thrown weight, <laughs> which was like, <laughs> I kind of feel like, you know, hindsight me would have just been like, oh, God, you missed some, some precious opportunities there. But like, so, you know, learned, knew so much of the theory, though, about like how it all worked and how to do bridal math. Which was also, though, like, the way that it was taught was um, a little bit interesting because we didn't, we learned, like, you know, the the bridal math and forces math, um, but didn't really ever touch on anything more specific about arena rigging. Right. Um, which, like, especially given the setting of Chicago, you know, I think there's the hope that it's just, like, nobody's going to... I mean, I don't know, shouldn't, shouldn't knock on the, like, oh, you're just going to go to college just to become a, like, union rigger. But, like, I don't, like, that was maybe not exactly the, like, imagined career path. Um, so it didn't, there, didn't get talked about. There certainly is, and it's less today, there's a convergence, but clearly there was a thought back in the early 2000s as the ETCP exams were being developed that there was enough distinction between arena style rigging and theater rigging that we have two tests and there's overlap um the math overlaps um and as i just said with automation becoming more prevalent within our live shows it's kind of a crossover, but for instance, when I took the test in 2005, fleet angle, nowhere on the arena test would you cover fleet angles, but the theater test had it because you were dealing with wire rope coming out of a, a head block or a loft block. Now, obviously with automation, particularly performer flying, there's wire rope and shivs and automation and motors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now it's kind of this blend, but there is kind of this overreaching concept that in arena rigging you have a rigger their job is to hang the heavy shit in theater you don't see a lot of people coming out of college going hey i'm a rigger it's i'm a yeah. technical director i'm a master carpenter rigging is a subset of the scenic portion of the theater side of the business and it's kind of funny that how that interrelates because electrics in theater they do their own rigging almost yeah. the, the 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 flyman or the atd or the td is responsible is responsible for rigging and loading in the show but it's kind of like well tell me how much weight you're going to put on that line set and this is the line set you can use to squeeze in between the set pieces the designer you know has <laughs> deemed has to be at 19 feet three and a half inches from the preceding wall yeah <laughs> and the lighting designer has decided they have to have an electric just upstage of that. Um, how much weight is it? Great. You do that. But 
that's kind of the end of it. And it's interesting to see how that, how the, the delineation between departments is formed in the two different, I, I can't use the term arenas, the two different <laughs> sides of the business. And it's always, it, it's curious to me as an educator and talking with people like Eric Rouse or Ed Leahy or Bill Sapsis, mm-hmm. um, Delbert Hall, a, a bunch of us who are trainers going, I'm surprised no university has come out and said, you know what, we we are able to put together a curriculum for someone who wants to be a theater rigger in the specifics in that. Yeah, Maybe that will happen with automation. Yeah, I think the thing actually, you know, now that you're mentioning it, the thing that I do think is interesting is in a lot of the places that I've worked, um, you know, like at the Wallace, we're kind of really there's there's a lot of overlap. And so we're kind of like, you know, we're all up in each other's business. But like in a lot of other places that I've worked, I do like, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, that it usually is like the electrics team is usually pretty self-contained for their entire process, including you know, loading weight and, you know, being in charge of operating line sets. And so then it's just like, so they basically have, you know, a slight variation on the same, you know, especially in terms of counterweight rigging, the same skill sets that, you know, like a scenery department is going to have. Right. And I mean, even sometimes, because it's like when you're sort of inventing lighting positions, and so then you have to do some of that, like, you know, unusual stuff where you're like, well, I got to build this, like, entire light wall. And like, you know, that that might involve, you know, some coordinating with scenery, but then it's just like, well, so I got to, you know, figure out how to rig my stuff. And so we're all kind of in our own. (laughs) I wonder if that's due to a perception that, Electrics is easy because you fly the line set in, you load your lighting, you load your cable, whatever that is. And as soon as you counterweight, as soon as you find balance and everything's good, you're basically done. Depending on your specific theater and the cable pick, that's that's the variable where maybe your load shifts a little as you fly out to trim. But versus scenic, where as simple as you're hanging soft goods. And when you tie the soft goods on 99% of the weight is on the floor mm-hmm. and then you got a counterweight, but you're counterweighting to what your finish load is going to be, not what it is as you just tied it on. And so there's a shift or, or I shouldn't say, or, and then you get more complicated when you have a giant portal that you're building and where it weighs 700 pounds and it's laying on the floor and you got to stand it up. Mm-hmm. But that means for some time that arbor has 700 pounds in it that's not being counterbalanced. So there's procedural and technical challenges on the scenic stuff that maybe you don't have to deal with as much on the electrics. And yes, I can poke holes in my own theory by saying, <laughs> what about standing up light ladders or oh, yeah. or tail downs on electrics, et cetera? Yes, we can find you know exceptions to the real quote-unquote yeah. all the time yeah well i've done so many tail downs for shows oh my god or uh we i mean this doesn't quite impact i mean i guess it kind of does we we have the trouble where our um our battens come in really close to the deck and so if we're hanging moving lights of any appreciable size they have to be you know kind of just like loosely yoked 
and mm-hmm. then sort of like awkwardly leaning on the floor um, before we can fly them. And... It is a very interesting thing, but I, I had a space I did a, an inspection in uh, in Rhode Island for a private school and their line sets came in about two feet off the floor. Ew. <laughs> and they stopped six or seven feet from the loft blocks. And the reason for this was that when the space was built, the building inspector insisted that the line sets be ADA compliant. And it it's an interesting thought process because it's a school. And fundamentally, I agree with the thought that you should give equal opportunity to every student, regardless of their uh, abilities or disabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with a, you know, I mean, technically I still have, but I grew up with a learning disability. You, there are accommodations made for me to help me learn in the style in which I needed to learn. And I grew from it and I learned to manage certain aspects. But I was lucky I grew up in a school system that had a very good uh, support system for that. So I'm like, all right, that's kind of cool, but it also really does limit some function that we're used to in a space where you can't fly everything out all the way. So they they were limited in the physical size of the building. You know, if they had another 15 feet of fly space, who would have cared? You could do that. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of an interesting idea of, of adapting your system for people who are not fully abled to say. Yeah. Or or we should actually say traditionally abled or, you know, I don't know what the language would be to be uh, more inclusive with that, but what we're used to as the norm in having to shift that. I want to ask you a question, if you don't mind, which is mm-hmm. when did you graduate? Which is my sneaky way of saying, how old are you? <laughs> and I'm not asking, what I'm asking for is really, let me rephrase the question. Maybe I can add a cool sound effect, like backing up the tape. Um, <laughs> How long have you been in the business? And the reason I'm asking is to give the other listeners an idea of where you are in your own journey within the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I did, did graduate after, you know, normal time frames of high school to college uh four years of each um so I graduated in 2013 um but I do in I feel like this is probably a little bit of the like snobbishness of the people who went to my college um because pretty much everybody if they weren't because some of the people who I went to school with were like honestly already working professionals um which kind of blew my mind because I was like, why are you going to school? Um, (laughs) But like um, so many of us were either, you know, getting design gigs through our professors or doing work, study work. Um, So I do. And like, because all of that stuff is pretty intense. I'm like, I do say that I basically started working at 18 when I started college and I started working as a work study. Um, because it was like, that was like such a crash course in at least my carpentry education. If, if you're getting paid, you're a professional. Well, 
<laughs> I, I mean, seriously, it, going to my sailboat racing background, the difference between an amateur and in athletics, the difference between an amateur and a professional is professionals are making a living or getting paid mm-hmm. to do that versus doing it as a, as, as a hobby or as a uh, something you love to do. So in col- in high school, I started working for a sound company doing their lightings. And this was, you know, small sound company. Here's a couple of stacks. Here's a bunch of park hands. And it's a party for, you know, a college or a college frat or whatever the case may be, quick and dirty. And I maybe made 25 bucks for, you know, eight hours of work from, you know, three to 11 or whatever. But I was getting paid. I was in high school. I was making money. So I I count that as when I started in the industry. I don't look at it as saying, well, I didn't do it until after I graduated college because not everybody goes to college. And the idea of a professional going back to school is just to gain very specific skills to what they're doing as their profession. So. So. Yeah, so 18. (laughs) How did you, um, was there anything between graduating and the Wallace in terms of anything, uh, anything, I I don't want to say significant to say that the (laughs) other things weren't significant. A lot of people, they graduate, you freelance for a little bit, you, you kind of see what's out there. How was that transition from academia to full time working? Um, yeah, I had, I had a lot of in between stuff and just like a lot of bouncing around. Um, cause yeah, after I, uh, cause I had it in my head when I graduated college that I wanted to work, um, as you know, a, some, you know, variety of carpenter for a regional theater. Um, and then I got, you know, uh, clued into um, a bunch of theaters around the country that do like a uh, post undergrad like year of, you know, kind of like a slightly high, more highly paid like internship uh, deal. Um, so I did spend a year at uh, Berkeley Rep um, in their program uh so i think my title was like the scenic construction fellow um so i did that for a year um my best friend convinced me to move down to san diego after that um and so that was actually (laughs) i mean that was sort of us just being like oh boy our college life was really intense and we could use a break um so we were just like we're just gonna live cheaply and work retail (laughs) <laughs> so, so I didn't have to work retail until after I graduated college. But um but so I did did some very small like freelance things when I was living there. Um and then and then my friend went to she moved to Vancouver and so I was just like, well, I guess I'll I don't know, maybe I'll go do a summer stock. Um did a summer in uh the Finger Lakes region of uh New York. Um, and then was like, well, now I also don't know what to do now. And so then I moved back to Chicago um, and uh, worked for an events company because um, I was like, this feels peripherally, you know, this feels uh, theater adjacent. 
enough uh, that I could work there and then uh, got um, a part-time job, uh, a part-time staff carpenter position uh, back at uh, the theater school. Um, I think mostly because they were uh, very encouraged to have a, a previous attendee um, who kind of knew some of the intricacies um, and uh, some of the challenges of working in that particular space. So I think right. that's, you know, part of part of the thing. Um, but yeah, so I spent uh, about a year living back in Chicago and working there and uh, also very occasionally doing freelance around Chicago. Um, yeah, and then I moved out here in 2016 and have been started freelancing um also worked briefly for an events company um but like they just you know you're one of the like 20 people who's just standing around making sure that people aren't getting too rowdy and just kind of being there for security right um but uh yeah and then started yeah started freelancing here started yeah, that was when I first worked for the Wallace and uh, started working for Bigger Hammer. Um, and then I've done, yeah, I've done a few other things. Oh, yeah, started working for a fabrication shop um, that does, like, much more corporate events type of stuff, but is still very much um, higher-level carpentry. Yep. Um, yeah, and then the this... this visit this full-time position became available and i was strongly encouraged to apply <laughs> was the words of my now well i mean i guess he was always kind of my boss but yeah my now boss was like highly encourage you to apply and i was like is that to say that you would want that i am the person that you would want to be in this job <laughs> you should apply wink wink nudge nudge yeah it, there was there was so much of that because i was just like oh i don't know if i'm qualified and he was just like mm, <laughs> you better <laughs> here's a line here's another line i'm looking at you between the two lines come on read between them let's go <laughs> yep pretty much <laughs> so what have some of the challenges been for you within the industry? Oh, God. I mean, just, yeah, like I, yeah, being being a young and relatively physically small woman is just like, there's, there's two strikes right there. Um, I mean, yeah, like that's those have been kind of the things because it's like, and especially, you know, in this position of being, you know, one of the people who, especially for like, you know, um, the, the rental clients, you know, representing the space, um, you know, like people come in and they're just like looking, looking for like, you know, literally anybody else who's looks like the person who's in charge of the place. Um, yeah, do you I'm think just... do you think that is a broad mentality of touring or rental clients who I, I'm I'm formulating the question and changing it at the same time. <laughs> is is it more that the perception is you work full time for a venue 
and there is a perceived bias against that of, oh, well, you couldn't cut it, cut it touring or doing something else without quantifying what that something else is. But there's I do think there are people who have a knock on, oh, you're a venue person, so you're not as good as the road person, which is BS. Um <laughs> I haven't, or, that. I haven't noticed that because, but I think mostly just because I don't think we have, we don't do like those kinds of tours. I could, I could definitely see that being, you know, like the, the, the happening in the bigger arena right. shows. Or so, like, yeah. so do you think it's more based on your gender and your physical, I, I'll use appearance in a broad <laughs> sense, but your your physique and your gender. Do you think that is what they are keying into and they're biased towards that? Yeah, I, I definitely get that. And I think also just the like, yeah, the the appearance of age too. Um yeah. Yeah, the, there there certainly is a weird psychological thing as a species that we go through, which is you have a, all of us, every single person has a tough time growing up and you can say, well, so-and-so has it easier because of X or Y, but until you're in each and every other person's individual circumstance, your, your problems are the worst problems in the world because they're yours. Mm -hmm. And so there is this, um, my brain just shut off. Yeah. <laughs> Biased. Da, da, da. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I don't, don't know where he's going. <laughs> just like That's this. <laughs> yep. evolutionary biases. Yes. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, it, the so you go through this stuff wherever it is growing up from adolescence to, to being a teenager or a young adult or whatever term you want to use to when you're finally an adult and there are days where i question whether i'm an adult and i'm in my mid 40s um <laughs> and so there's we societally we build this bias towards younger people because you don't Dennis Leary has a bit in his uh, Locked and Loaded album, which is, you don't know shit about shit. Pull up your pants. <laughs> and it's really the idea of, well, you haven't experienced these things yet. Like you you haven't had the opportunity. We perceive that a younger person has not had the opportunity to go through certain life experiences. And hence, they don't have those experiences to draw knowledge from. And I think that can be true, but I think you need to actually evaluate the person you're working with in front of you and find out, um, you know, evaluate the person based on their actual skills and not a perception of where they're young. So they couldn't have done this. Listen, there are people like yourself who got in the business at 18 and went right on the road and in four years, probably learned more about our business than there are people who have been in the business for 40 years. So it is kind of interesting to see how we have to think about that aspect 
because we are going everyone is biased. We all have biases. It's whether or not you act on them and B, how you try to not allow them to negatively affect what you're trying to achieve together, which is bloating in a show, a performance, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Wow. That was my thought. I don't know if it was coherent or not. <laughs> no, so, I mean, like, yeah, definitely, definitely makes sense. Cause yeah. Cause I mean, like, you know, in preparing for this, we're just like, you know, reflecting on my history of stuff and I'm just like, yeah, like, especially coming out of um, college with some gaps in my general theatrical knowledge, like the year that I spent at working at um, Berkeley Rep was like huge because I did like, you know, really like filled in those holes and then also like honed a bunch of skills that I already had. Cause like, you know, in doing a lot of theater carpentry, like there's a ton of rigging or not rigging, also rigging, but like there's a ton of welding, you know, if you've got the facilities in your scene shop. So like really like, you know, ramping up my welding skills and stuff like that. So like even just that one year was like a huge explosion of knowledge. And like, that's also one of the things that I'm like, in terms of just like general life skills for people to have is like, <laughs> gonna be cheesy, but it's like, you know, the lifelong learner, but it's like, you can still like, you know, especially since this is an industry that's always changing. So it's like, it does like, you know, keep you on your toes. Just like, if you've only worked with conventional fixtures, like, I don't know what DMX is, but like, you better learn because like, that's what everything is being run off of these days. You know, right. Stuff like that. So RDM. RDM is a new <laughs> thing. It, you, there was a, a, a post on a message board on Facebook the other day with a, a high school theater person saying, we have a couple of uh, city theatrical show babies and we moved some things around and now all of a sudden one of the branches running off a show baby, everything's flickering. And we don't know what's causing it. And I responded in my limited knowledge of RDM. And I got it. I freely met in some of the uh, people who work on the standards know this. I've been known as a rigger to go to the plug fest and to hang out with the people doing network engineering just because I think it's cool. And I've even brought up, hey, how can I use this for rigging? How could I use this protocol for information about what I'm doing in terms of load monitoring or something? So I answered this question. This person was saying, hey, there are times where if you plug a non-RDM compliant object into this chain of DMX, it will cause problems for everything else. So what did you hang? What did you change? Did you add something in there? And that brought up the, the, the answer was, what's RDM? I was like, that's exactly the point is, you know early 90s what's dmx no i want my analog since jones connectors now it's the reverse i say since jones and people are like what's that <laughs> it's a plug people with a bunch of pins and they're rectangular and they're just big um so how what do you do in those circumstances or those situations where you quickly establish that this person you're interacting with is not giving you the base level of respect that your position and title deserves right off the bat, regardless of you, your boss, 
felt you had the skills to hire you in that position in a venue that is, by the way, not in Timbuktu. No offense to those who are working in Timbuktu <laughs> listening to this. But Hollywood is a little different profile than the middle of nowhere. So you're who the people who hired you saw that you had skills and they put you in that position. And now you're interacting with someone who is ignoring the simple fact that you are hired in that position and devaluing what you bring to the table. How do you deal with that in a, in a non combative, non shutdown? How, how do you make it a positive? Uh, I mean, sometimes I wish I was a little bit more combative, but that's mostly because I always come up with like the best snarky comment comebacks like too late. Um, but, you know, in terms of keeping it constructive, um, I think it's usually just the like, you know, consistently being, you know, clearly present as the person who knows what's going on or what's happening. Because um, I do feel like in a lot of those situations, um, you know, like people are just asking like the first person who's around or like, you know, the first dude who looks like he knows what he's doing, who's around. And like, I mean, at least I have to say that like I owe a lot to uh, the regular overhire crew who are here because they'll they'll usually be the ones to like rally and just be like oh well i don't know i don't have the authority to answer that question for you may i direct you to our atd claudia and like so yeah which like you know it's sort of the thing of like having a lot of people go to bat for me in that way to just be like you know they're not the type of people who are just gonna be like i'm just gonna do something somebody asked me where right. they'll just be like, you know, I know that I don't have the authority, so like, let me direct you to the person who does. Who is this person who you've kind of ignored? Um, but that's great. But like, to... you know, so it's the thing of like, you know, being being present and like, you know, sort of, I don't know, feel a little like meerkatish, where I'm just like, you know, sort of like close by in the wings, like you know, kind of keeping an eye on everything, so I can just kind of like jump in and just be like, did I hear you ask a question? about the, the the area of the theater that I, you know, am in charge of, because I can help you out with that. And right. know, just sort of <laughs> jumping in like that. It, um, should, it should signify something to people in your, in a similar position to what we're talking about, that you have the respect of the, uh, of your coworkers for them to, whether or not they're being this cerebral or not to say, that's not my place to make a decision. That is the person that you need to speak to. And because we certainly understand that when one is not receiving the respect that they should be getting, it doesn't necessarily help the situation to have other people quote unquote, defend you. And that can, although it may temporarily fix the immediate situation, it can create other situations where you're like, why am I even in a position where I need someone else to defend me? So when people are doing it just because they're like, hey, that's, you know, this is the line of command. This is the the structure we have. It kind of helps build that idea of 
people have a role within the team and they do their job and in total sports analogy it's what bill belichick does so amazingly well which is <laughs> do your job don't try to do more than your job just do your job and be extremely good at it and if everyone does that who's part of the team we win we succeed mm -hmm. we do amazing things so hey nope that's above my pay grade go ask this person yeah yeah so there's so it's yeah it's a lot of that i mean i feel like <clears throat> yeah like it's got really lucky here with the you know the people that i work with because you know, at least like in, in other departments there will be the sort of like very gung-ho people who will just go do stuff and then get in trouble and maybe also not understand why they're getting in trouble because they're just like i don't know this person asked me it's like but you're not the person who makes that call but over helpful <laughs> They, yeah. They're just so eager to please. And, and, and I got to tell you something. I have that mentality. <laughs> I, I'm more than happy to help people. And in, in, in it is a hard thing to learn to be like, ah, that's not my responsibility. And if I say yes, then it becomes my responsibility. There's, I don't know if I've mentioned this on, a, on any previous episodes, one day we were talking about a similar situation of being asked to do something that wasn't part of our scope to say. And my buddy says, don't get out of the boat. And I looked at him. It was a corporate gig in a hotel. <laughs> and I looked at him. I was like, what? And he's like, don't get out of the boat. You get out of the boat, you get shot, you're dead. And it's the <laughs> line he was referring to Apocalypse Now. And by the way, the fact that I said that correctly the first time is a miracle. <laughs> the scene where they're approaching the beach and the private's going to jump out of the boat and the sergeant, I think the sergeant grabs him and pulls him down. And he says, don't get out of the boat. If the if you get out of the boat, you're going to get shot and then you're going to die. So stay in the boat. And it basically was saying, stay in your lane. If you take responsibility for something else, you're being a goody two shoe and you're like, oh, I'll help you move this road case. And then all of a sudden you're the one who falls off the truck when it mm -hmm. wasn't your job to do it in the first place. That's the situation where being too helpful can work against you. And that it's hard to tone that back because typically people who are that helpful are trying to build their own value so that they can feel appreciated, that they mm -hmm. can feel valuable. Man, I should start calling myself Dr. Phil. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I mean, I don't really think that that's very true, though. And like, that's that's one of the things that I, I almost have a hard time with, um, you know, cause I'm just like, stay, stay active on the, you know, the bigger hammer roster. So I'll just be like, Oh, well, like they super need people for this gig. That's like, you know, go do a four hour mini after a day of work. And then like, but the transition is really challenging actually to be like, you know, cause because one of the jokes is that like, you know, so many of these jobs are like neck down. And, like, in some ways, that's a relief from, like, after having a day yep. of, like, having to be the person who's in charge and answer all the questions. And I'm just like, and then I just get to go, like, hang some lights and push some road cases around. And that's kind of nice. But, like, there was one there was one gig especially that I was doing where it was just, like, a last minute, just need a bunch of hands. And so I walked into it. And it was one of those, like, this was our, you know, our rehearsal setup in a studio before we go out on tour. And just, like. So, like, there was so much, like, 
these things don't work. Like this is our first time disassembling everything in preparation for going on the tour. Like you could just see like all of the like interpersonal drama between like a lot of the people on like of the tour staff and just like, and so then there's like, you know, one person who's like struggling so hard who is like on the tour staff. And so like, you know, ATD me was just kind of like, do you want to like, should we go like step aside and we can go have a conversation about like, you know, <laughs> just like that, I'm here stagehand like that is not my job yep <laughs> but i'm just it, like like that that turning off that part of your brain when it's been on for so long is also really challenging absolutely absolutely i mean <laughs> i <clears throat> there are a few occasions i i do some work for um uh john sharp who owns united staging rigging and uh i'll do some work for him well pre-pandemic and it's pretty simple stuff it's working at the casino in boston and you know hanging a couple of motors and 40 feet of truss and i'm not in charge there's a a production manager person who is a full-time employee of the company who's in charge of that space and really yes because they know me and my skill set they rely on me for certain things if i suggest something to the person in charge there will be a discussion, but I am more than happy to show up there because every other minute of every other project I'm in charge, it's nice to show up and just say, tell me what you want to do. As long as it's safe and, and we get this done, I'm happy to do it. You want me to bolt this trust together? There are times, yeah, I'm getting older. Being on my knees is not the greatest thing in the world, but I'll put on top of road cases and be lazy and work at a standing <laughs> height. Um, I'm joking. I get on. Yeah, the floor is fine. Um, but yeah, you bolt the trust together and you just do that thing. And as you said, there can be some enjoyment of being like, I don't have to worry about making a decision about this all the way down to, I'll ask other people, Hey, which way do we want to put the bolts in? Like, <laughs> tell me what I'm doing. This is great. Let's keep going. <laughs> as long as I don't have to do something twice, I'm happy. Um, yeah. Definitely. Have you? Have you, um, as, as these situations happen, have you ever, I'm going to use the term confront. Have you ever confronted the person doing it and been like, it, you know, they just got you at the right mindset where you're like, I'm not just going to try to passive aggressively solve this situation. I am just going to speak my mind and Hey, buddy. I'm the one in this position. You have to be asking me, stop, you know, looking around me. And if that has happened, how did it go? And and is, are there any stories that you have of a person who didn't know how bad they were behaving and had a recognition reversal moment where they said, oh, shit, you're right. And it the situation got a lot better because they recognized that flaw that they were promoting. I, I don't think that that's ever happened in terms of dealing with um, like other clients. Um, I've had like, mm, I've had like smaller kinds of those moments in like dealing with overhire crew um 
but like more in terms of like the types of people who are super gung-ho and think they know what they're supposed like what the steps of a process are supposed to be doing and i'll have to just be like hey guys like it's cool that you did that but it was actually very not cool that you did that and like now you're gonna have to fix it because you actually fucked something up kind of bad and like you need to be waiting for my instructions like you don't understand the full scope of a project that we're doing right um so like in that kind of circumstance and so like that's you know that's you know pretty much the conversation that happens in those instances um i mean like it's more yeah it's more it's more stuff like that you know of being the person who does have the full scope of a project and being like hey when i told you to do this this way it had a purpose i wasn't just pulling things out of my ass like you know to just say stuff um so yeah so like those are more of the conversations that happen I mean, because I think when it's when it's like, you know, rental clients, um, you know, it's sort of the thing of like after they realize, you know, the position that I'm in and like, you know, the benefits of communicating with a person in my position, they usually like, you know, shape up and are just like, oh, I need this thing. Like, you know, and they're nice about it. Um, yeah, it's usually, yeah, it's usually more of the like, me me and my overhire crew dynamic where those conversations are happening right but yeah so i mean and then <laughs> well <laughs> and then i very occasionally get to have what i call my like feminist soapbox moments which are like usually in the like the broader stagehand world and it's just a little like let me let me just complain about the broader sexism in the industry and give you a give you a hot quick lesson, sir. <laughs> like <laughs> shit like that. <laughs> but like those those are like yeah. Usually when there's like the downtime to invite the conversation. Cause yeah, like one of the times that that happened was some some dude was just making friendly chit chat after like a lunch, and I was just like, "It was like, how was your lunch?" And I was like, "I finished reading this feminist comic book," and he was like, "Oh, do you consider yourself a feminist?" And like a very skeptical way, and I'm just like, "Feminism is not a dirty word these days. Like, we're not destroying men anymore." <laughs> but like, and so then just like having like a brief chit chat of just be like, "Well, when you're a woman in this industry, you kind of have to be because like here's all the bullshit that I put up with, like." and I'm done let's go back to work <laughs> it, it's it's an interesting problem because I think there are a lot of people who are stuck in the middle not knowing how to communicate about a situation because oh they they support the idea of treating people the same based on their skills and not on gender or race or any of the things that do not bring anything to the table. And I'm saying that very specifically because like I've spoken about with some previous guests, physical size can have some benefits and disbenefits Mm -hmm. depending on the situation. So that may be something that factors in. 
for example, I have a, a person who works for me who is smaller than I am. And we were just doing an install on a project, a pipe grid. And we had to squeeze between two HVAC ducts to insert a threaded rod into the concrete ceiling. So because it was four feet above where the new ceiling was going, I tried first because I had the longer arms and we thought maybe I could reach a little easier. The problem was I could not squeeze my chest between the two, the HVAC and the, the framing for the ceiling. And we tried like a good five minutes. I'm like, oh, maybe if I got some, you know, grease or something, I could slide through here. It just <laughs> it wasn't happening. And I'm sure it was horribly funny for everyone else to watch as I'm trying to push myself up the ladder into this hole that everyone probably knew he's not fitting in that hole. <laughs> and my employee, Luke, who uh, is uh, five foot six, five foot seven. I may be, I might be being generous there. I don't want to be like, he's three feet tall, but uh, he gets up there and just fits perfectly. And he actually was able to stand on, on the ladder appropriately. And his like knees down were below the ceiling. And he's like, oh yeah, this was easy. I was like, that's why I keep you around. You know, it's not your, it's not your, your brains and your talent as a rigger and as a former, literally a former rocket scientist who's a very smart guy. Oh, yeah. he, he, he actually, he was a rocket scientist and then he became an attorney. So he's stupid. Oh, wow. He's clearly a moron <laughs> because he got into this business as a fun thing to do in retirement. Um, but, you know, we were joking about that stereotype of, oh, that's why I keep you around because you're so small. You can fit in the places that I can't fit. But it's funny because there's a shred of truth in there, which is, hey, Yes, there was an advantage to him being able to do that because otherwise I'm not finishing that project. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I, I, what, yeah, one of my funny stories about that, just that thing was like, you know, showing up, showing up for a stagehand call and like, you know, this, you know, it was like stage had already been loaded in, you know, I think I was there as like an electrician or something. So I'm like, you know, coming in in the middle of everything. And I sort of like, you know, wander up to the stage and like one of the, you know, like one of the other like lead guys is just kind of like, oh, hello, um, you're small. I bet you get asked to go into lots of tiny places. And I was just like, am I going under the stage? And he was like, yes, please. <laughs> like, mm -hmm, yep. Okay. Also, it like wasn't a particularly like low stage. It was probably like, you know, at least like four feet tall. But I was just like, okay, yep, yep. A little person shows up and uh, you're getting shoved in some tiny spaces. But like, yeah. also but, like, yeah. But conversely, I'm I'm just six foot, um, broad shouldered, pretty strong. I'm not, you know, going to the gym, you know, working out every day. You get pigeonholed that way, too, of, oh, you're a big, stocky guy. You can help lift this heavy thing. <laughs> oh, you don't need that. help. You don't need help lifting those two fifty pound bases and moving them. You're, you're a big, strong person. You can do it. Or we do it. Oh, get some young, strong backs. Now, again, there's truth in that. As we get older, especially in a physical industry, you start breaking down. But we can also do things like, uh, I don't know, wheels. Yeah. Mechanical advantage things so that we can do this longer and make life easier. I yeah, joke, I'm like 
work smarter, not harder. I'm, I'm, I'm not a rigger because I like the challenge and the mental stuff. I'm lazy. And so I use machinery <laughs> to pick things up. That's the whole point. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I think it's like, it is funny that, you know, there is a lot of that, that stuff, but like one of the, God, one, yeah, one of the things that happens so often, like in response to that though, is the incredibly over-enthusiastic compliment. <laughs> like that is one of my least favorite things is it's the like, I'll pick up. Yeah. Like I can, I can come like fairly comfortably carry a 50 pound boom base by myself and like somebody will see me doing that or even something of like less consequence and just be like, wow, you're so strong. And I'm just like, yes, yes. I and am. let me drop this on your foot. Nope, yeah. sorry, I wasn't and as strong as I thought also, I was. Also, like, my, my favorite version of that was, like, I was just pulling, like, a very full card of something. Like, it wasn't even that heavy. And a dude was just like, wow, you got muscles. And, like, of course, like, I was like, what a poorly phrased exclamation. Because I was also just like, yes, they hold up my skeleton. Like, <laughs> of course I have muscles. <laughs> I am a, a, like, fully formed human. <laughs> like... What do you what and, do you want? <laughs> and I think it's important we're joking and laughing about it. But the serious part of it is that is the unknowing sexism within society. Oh yeah. We make Cause like, now cause, yeah cuz it's the like I yeah, the reason why you are so enthusiastic is because you did not expect me to be able to do that. Right. I think one of the challenges in my opinion, and I can be wrong. I think one of the challenges with bias like that in general is that we have as a society dealt with a lot of this stuff through humor. Mm-hmm. And you do form relationships with people in which you can make jokes about a person's differences i i very carefully want to use that word instead of disability or anything else it's just that they're different and so you make jokes about them because you like giving each other a hard time it's a bizarre screwed up way in which we show affection for each other Mm -hmm. doing that with a long established relationship with someone and i'm not going to quantify how long that is because it depends on the people i mean we've all met people and been like I felt like I've known you my entire life. And then I've known people for 30 years. I mean, like, I don't know squat about them. And I feel like I just, they're an acquaintance, which is why we created the term. It's like, yeah, they exist. I don't dislike (laughs) them, but they're just there. Um, There's a difference between that interpersonal relationship and a comment from someone you don't know that you just met saying something like that there's a significant difference and Mm -hmm. that is what people don't recognize and it makes it even worse when if you're the new person to a group that has established relationships and you see that behavior you can't interpret it as oh that's just them giving them a hard time you have to put it in the other category of that's just biased they're just being sexist racist whatever it is they're just And so it just makes, that's why it's gray. It's not black or white. It's gray in this mess. And Mm -hmm. once you hit that point where you now form this judgment, 
it's harder to have a conversation about it. It's harder to say, what is the situation? Is it actually inappropriate or is it a relationship between two people that I don't know about? And then you can add the the layer on the onion of, is it even appropriate for them to be behaving that way in a professional environment? Which you can make the argument yeah. that it's not. Yeah. I mean, because I think, and I think the, the other thing about it too is just in the context of like, given, you know, the wide, you know, disparities of the gender breakdown in the industry, like that is like, it is probably kind of a novelty for that man to be working with a woman. But for that woman, she is probably getting something like that on like every other gig that she's on. Right. So it's also the thing of just like this. Yeah, like this may be a novelty for that person, but for the person receiving the comment, it's just like, uh-huh, yep, got that again. Like, and it just happens like and the, the frequency with which it happens, too, is also part of the thing, because it's like, you know, in, ter- in terms of like the, the you know, the scale of one to ten of like sexist comments or like sexual harassment that you can be getting, it's just like, you know, that's. That's like a level one, but that is also like inversely proportional to the frequency of it because it's just like you get that stuff all the time. It it and 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 I apologize if I'm a, a I apologize to the people I will offend in two seconds. <laughs> it's not. We don't have to wait for the situation to be of oh. There is a quid quo pro of sexual favors between person A and person B to get this job done. We don't have to escalate to that. It doesn't have to be, oh, it wasn't that bad because, you know, this guy didn't hold his position over this woman to get sexual favors in order for her to advance professionally. Yes, that is hugely significant. And that happening once is really, really bad. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't discount the... It, the argument is, here we go, boxer. I know you hate that I'm just using uh, your company or your name in this analogy. It's a bigger <laughs> hammer. It doesn't mean that, you know, chipping away at the block with a little small hammer and doing a little damage repeatedly isn't eventually going to do the same thing as taking the eight pound sledgehammer and holding it over your head and hitting as hard as you can. You get mm-hmm. to the same place, which is a broken rock. Yeah. So. I was going to ask you, go, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, cause that, I mean, sort of like circling back to the, the conversation about like, you know, g- gender or like, you know, personage size biases and like perception of, um, you know, people's skill sets. Um, one, and I think this might've been the incident that actually earned him his nickname. There was one guy I worked with at the fabrication shop who was, a uh, like pretty chronic offender of casual sexism to the extent that I just started calling him mildly sexist Mike in my head. Um, <laughs> it was just like, you know, like once a week, you just like toss something out, you know, like, but so the one, the one like really, really bad thing that he said one time was we were, we were test fitting something and it was going poorly. And like, I think, you know, he was going to be one of the people who's going to be on site doing it for real. 
Um, and so he was getting all mad and he was just like, well, like when I'm doing this for real, I'm going to have like six guys, but like right now I've just got two guys and a girl. And I was just like, I'm sorry. No, you what? got two guys. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. Yep. yeah. Whereas the thing I'm just like, should I just, yeah. I was like, is this the point at which I just leave? Leave. And yeah. like one of those things too, where I'm like, cause I've got, I've got like, um, you know, like fairly small hands too. And like, part of it was that like one of the bolt connections was just like awful to make. And I'm just like, you're going to want somebody with tiny little hands to like bolt this thing together and like the patience to bolt something really stupid. And so then I'm just like, I hope those six guys are all like stupid and tiny and like built like little bean poles so that you will wish that you had this girl. And I was just like, of course. And the, but then, you know, the thing of just be like, don't necessarily feel comfortable saying all of this. Cause also like in that circumstance, like the only woman working in that portion of the shop. So I'm just like, I don't really think anybody would really have my back on that one. So I'm like, you know, angrily keep all of this to myself, but just be like, all right, I'm oddly sexist. Mike, you suck. Like, like, that's, so, oh my God, that's all I can have. So how does a person in the same situation, what is the appropriate course of action? How do we break the cycle where the victim no longer just has to tough it up or eat it or whatever and be like, oh, and bury it deep down inside them. And then 10 years later, they snap and, you know, do something silly. <laughs> Go on like, the like, rampage like of all of the people. Become an audio crazy. person. <laughs> um, how, and we touched about the fact that it doesn't necessarily work for people to save other people. We need it. We we need other people to say, hey, that behavior is not okay. But how do we do that in a process that moves everything forward where like we're we're stuck. We're stuck in this thing. If one of those other two guys had said something, hey, this is inappropriate, there was potential that everyone involved would say well you're just coming to the rescue of this person who can't defend themselves in the first place versus yeah. it needs to be addressed if we don't address these situations if we don't mention it at the time then it's not going to change yeah and i think you know in thinking a lot about this like that that is the crux of the the topic and the conversation i think is because that's a thing that i've never i've never felt comfortable doing um like i you know there's no um as far as i know like there's no just like take your casual sexism self defense course like when when me too is blowing up um, and, you know, I was thinking about all of these things and I was just like, you know, what's kind of dumb is when they teach self-defense in school. And I'm like, that's great. But like, I'm glad that I know how to effectively punch somebody in the face. Like if I'm being physically assaulted, which thank God has never happened to me, but like, I will be prepared for that. But 
it's also like feels like it's a quick fix for you know like people saying that you know they've dealt with these issues that they know are common and of course like i mean this is me speaking you know 10 years out of high school but like the thing that i want because like i feel like i don't personally have the tools for is like yeah diffusing those situations and like for so many other things that i feel like yeah like the low the low level stuff that you're going to encounter so much more frequently like you know, going to college in a big city, like, you know, getting a lot of street harassment and just like other like random strangers talking to you, like way beyond the point of comfort. Like, you know, cause I'm like the couple of instances that stuff like that has happened to me is, you know, either you just play along until, you know, it's time to go somewhere or like, you know, I've just run off an L train because I'm just like, I would love to go where I want to go, but also like this person won't stop talking to me and I don't know what to do about it. So I'm just going to leave, you know? So it's just like, I think have like, the yeah. So it's like, you know, so I, I don't personally have an answer because I'm really bad at that. (laughs) And I'm like the person who would like, would need the empowerment or like, you know, a guidepost for that. So I'm like, so, that's a that's a thing that I would love to see. And here's, like, here's, here's an idea. And this again, who knows if this would work? Um, let's let's skip the part where it it is upsetting that you would even need to do this. But <laughs> if that is our reality for now, which we're going to change, I wonder if if in certain applications you print a card, right? And you go up to the person and you're like, here, I want to give you my card. And they totally think you're giving them your phone number, which is totally going to screw them in a second anyway. And on the card, you just print. I really would appreciate if you would stop to be, you know, stop being sexist or whatever language you want to put on there to be just very straight to the point of, hey, your your behavior is inappropriate. And here's my thought process. You know, that's not a, the, that's not a bad idea. The concern I'm, is creating a scene yeah. and other people witnessing and the then piling on of, oh, they are just being they're just being bitchy. They're just being an asshole. They're just being difficult. You know, whatever label we like to play place on people who we think are just being difficult to deal with. You give a card and you just be like is it really just putting that person on notice? Like, Hey, your behavior is not okay. Here's a way for me to signal that to you in very clear English. And you just go bang and see if that changes their personality. Maybe, maybe they're not going to change, but maybe they stopped doing it to you because now they're going, Oh geez, is this person going to label me, me too? And am I going to get in trouble? even though they should be in trouble, but maybe it changes the environment that you are now working in. And that's what we're talking about is change the environment you're working in. So you feel comfortable. And I'm not saying this will fix it, but is that a way to diffuse and change the dynamics? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, something like that, I think could be, pretty effective especially because like in in terms of other 
things that come up in my life because like um i've thought of a similar thing in terms of just like when i want to explain to somebody that like yes i am a woman who works in a largely male dominated industry also i have an alternative haircut sometimes i look very queer sometimes i get confused for a man but also like and then just like but i can't go into all of the intricacies of gender and sex and sexual orientation and gender expression and gender identity and i was just like i just need like you know the little business card version of like the cute little poster that explains everything really concisely that i've seen in like you know like on internet memes or like in planned parenthood and i'm just like i just need that business card <laughs> to just be like right please don't please don't assume that i'm gay <laughs> like please don't assume that i'm a man like here's Here's a like tiny way to educate yourself very quickly about why you should not make these assumptions about people based on how they're dressed or how they present themselves. And like, so yeah, like I've already like, you know, the, the business card thing. I'm like, that's, I need that for that. But also like, yeah, just the like, <laughs> almost like, you know, like a, like a yellow or red card in like soccer where you'd just be like, mm. right. that's it. This is like, until like, yeah, to have like the degrees of things where it's like, here's your yellow card. Like, it, it's, you, should, you shouldn't say that shit. And like, if you say it again, I'm going to give you a red card and just be like, right. how to like take this to HR and give you right. who you're talking to. And, and, and the challenge is, I think the majority, 51% of the people we're going to interact with are probably not knowingly doing things we've it's it's learned behavior mm -hmm. for for instance uh i have someone i'm working with and i'm purposely being very vague uh to protect the innocent who i believe is transitioning and the um pronouns requested to be used are they them <laughs> and re regardless of my own personal opinion about anything if you come up to me and say hey i would prefer you to call me asshole instead of bob i'll call you asshole <laughs> like honestly i think the most direct way of dressing this is just call a person what they want to be called right mm -hmm. that's fine i'll give you that respect the challenge for me is a learned behavior of speaking, air quotes, proper English and referring to an individual as them. And my friend was like, here's how I've been dealing with it. Don't think of them sitting next to you. Think of them standing way far away from you, because then it becomes easier to say they over there, for instance, mm -hmm. or I'm talking about them over there. And I was like, okay, that's kind of a cool way of trying to do it. You're trying to change a behavior which could have been taught 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years before. And that takes some time. And what you're looking for is a person who will give you enough respect to try to change the behavior. They're going to screw up. If you've known someone by one name for 40 years and then they change the name, you're going to call them by the other name. We know that happens just based on 
married couples when a person gets married and changes their last name or they hyphenate the name. It takes some time to go like, oh, I got to change this. But then eventually you forget what the other name was. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was your other name. Okay, whatever. So there's this, I think what I'm trying to articulate is we got to figure out how to educate the people who don't know that they're doing it. Be (laughs) comfortable with allowing people time to change. Mm Mm-hmm. But also recognizing when someone is refusing to change and is just being an ass. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the sort of funny thing, too, that I've seen is people making really strong attempts, like, to 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 change, like, you know, language use and things, and then having it totally backfire. Because I was, you know, doing a thing where some people were just like... All right, guys. And then, like, you know, looking around at the like couple of women who were there is like, and girls. And I was just like, ooh, ooh, no. Nope, nope, I am not a girl. Like, (laughs) I was like, how about gals? Like, if you're going to pick one. Also, like, guys is, you know, still pretty generally accepted as like a good gender neutral, but also like, y'all, or like, you know, I get annoyed when it's just like, I need two guys over here. And I'm like, oh, it cast me out. So I'm like, you know, hands, yep. you know, like people. people. <laughs> I, I, I freely admit it's. I tend to use y'all and all y'all a bit. <laughs> um, folks, it, it it's a constant thing that I think about. It is. And it, it's an interesting. Process to try to change that aspect the, my, my friend who I was talking to about the situation, I brought up to them that one of the, the challenges is that as a species, this is genetic coding, no matter how disorganized you think you are, your brain is trying to put certain things in order. We like to group things together and quantify them. It's how we deal with this massive amount of data. So we're fighting that because when we use pronouns, we're using them as descriptives because we're trying to convey information to be as specific as possible so that the other person listening gets this data that's prepackaged and they can organize it efficiently and know what we're talking about. The problem is the indicators of what those data points are through history, we've picked to be race and gender and hair color or eye color, all these things that are just indications or descriptors, but also have these other meanings. So trying to be like, I, which my, again, my solution is just call them by the name, Bob, Joe, a-hole, dipshit, <laughs> you know, they're all related. Um, you know, take Take those people and, and go do that task. Um, I do find myself actively trying to change how I describe something. But then the challenge is, if I'm describing two things that are fairly identical and there's only one thing to differentiate them, and, you know, at what point do we try to intellectualize ourselves past something that is just, I, I want to 
I want to be careful. I don't want to say sexism is human nature, but apparently it really is because it's just happening all the time. Um, I don't know how we get to that middle ground. That's what I'm trying to say. How do we how do we get people to recognize that they have to change some behavior, but it's okay to have certain components of other behavior because it's how we communicate. Yeah. I mean, and I think, well, like, you know, the, the having the concept of like, yeah, the transitional period or just being like, you know, the sort of compassionate approach of like, you know, it, especially in like, you know, the, the things of like people changing pronouns that they use or names. And so then it's just like, you know, especially if you're having those conversations with people like that, where it's just like fully acknowledge the fact that I will probably mess up and I will do my best and just like, please be patient with me. I mean, especially you know, I was even having a conversation with my mom, you know, recently where she was just like, you know, it's like the concept of being tech native, but being like LGBTQ native and like, you know, so acknowledging, you know, that like these, these were concepts that were not widely known, you know, when she was coming of age and all of that stuff. And so it's just like leaving the room for those learning curves. Right. Uh, like, that's why I do like, you know, appreciate the opportunities when I get to just like have like a nice chill conversation about stuff. Like there was um, on, on a recent uh, thing that I was doing um, with bigger hammer, um, uh, I got, I got called sir. And like, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, you know, we're working in a hotel. So it was like, I was holding the, the hotel room door open for like a couple of guys who worked for the lighting company. And, you know, from all the way across the room, one of them was like, thank you, sir. And then as he got closer, he was like, ma'am, sorry. And I was like, <laughs> that's okay. It happens all the time. And he was like, Oh, Oh God. Like, I, really? Like that makes me feel even worse. And I was just like, all right, well, they're going to, you know, teachable moment, like, uh, bring out the soapbox a little bit and, you know, but like nicely, whereas like we got a nice little stroll down a hallway to an elevator in which we could expound on, you know, the concept of just like, understand why you might assume that I'm a sir. It is a very male dominated field. But also, like, here's, you know, the current problem with using g even just gendered honorifics. Like, here's the thing that we haven't figured out what a good, like, gender neutral word is. Like, you mm -hmm. know, if you want, if, you, if you're trying to be nice to people, but like, you know, you know, that's, that's still a piece of our language that is very, you know, male or female. And like, we haven't figured out what a good... Right. Word for, you know, what what is the gender neutral of sir or ma'am? You know, like, you just kind of don't have that yet. But it's just like, you know, maybe just don't use those words then, like, if there's a question. But then it also, like, and I was, you know, I was a little bit, like, you know, steamed about it still. So I was just like, and then I was joking around with my crew lead. And I was just like, I should just change my name to sir. Just have everybody call me sir. And then it wouldn't piss me off because then it would be my name. Like I, I, I'm just going to call everybody sir. Just like, sir, yeah. sir, sir, sir. Um, I think the, you know, as I'm thinking about what we're talking about, I think what we're focusing on is respect. Giving respect to another person to easily accommodate the environment 
And I realize some people might focus on the accommodate. You shouldn't have to accommodate. We do for everything. We make concessions all the time in terms of our own behavior. I don't go driving down the street at 900 miles per hour blaring Metallica out of my window because it would be disturbing to other people. As much fun as that would really be <laughs> to do, I accommodate the rest of society and give them respect by not doing it at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's a horrible example. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, but I mean, it's... But it's... Giving, giving the other person enough respect to say, okay, this is something that is important to you because it has been brought up. So I can respect that enough and it is easy for me to do to comply or to try to comply. And I think if the person who's making the quest sees the effort, then that relationship, that new relationship that's being formed right there has a better chance of succeeding because be both people respect each other. They're giving each other the indications of what they need for that relationship, whether it's work or friends or whatever to develop and to grow. And that's the point is that when you see people behave racist or sexist, it's because they just don't respect the other person, period. Mm -hmm. And that's what has to change. Yeah. And also like, you know, un understanding the backgrounds of how these things occur because it's just like you know like the especially within the industry of just like the incredible bias of just be like this is you know predominantly men who work in this environment and the fact that women and non-binary people are coming into this world is just like yeah so that is a you know that is a transition in the industry and you know needs to be worked on and, and so like you it, know and like it will change history yeah right like, it is too. going to change how it we forget that we're less we're just about a hundred years right around a hundred years from women being able to work in industry period like the the advances that society has made in the last centuries two centuries comparatively to the rest of our history, it's pretty significant. So we're going to continue to evolve. We're going to continue to advance. It will change. I'm very specifically not saying better because we'll find some... <laughs> and that will find another source of change or another need for change will mm -hmm. develop. We just... Maybe we don't see it yet. Um yeah yeah so like you know just understanding that those that's that's you know it's it's comes from that history of things and i mean right. like, you know, if i really want to get on you know the feminist soapbox but of just the like and you know how much of the, the absolute history of like everything in terms of you know women's exclusion from stuff and patriarchal structures but that's a that's a thesis paper i have yet to write so we'll save that <laughs> well once you write it you can uh present it here and we'll uh you know, support you um i want to ask you a couple of other questions not to change the subject but to ch <laughs> but um i do want to ask a couple of questions that i ask a lot of my guests because i think mm -hmm. uh 
some of the answers have been wonderful. So the first one is, uh, who have some of your mentors been in the industry? Um, yeah, there's been, there's been a lot of people. Um, and if you say filler boxer, I'm deleting that. <laughs> um, I mean, definitely, uh, the, the guy who was the scene shop foreman in college, um, cause he was just a, he was a wacky dude who had like, you know, he was the epitome of the creative problem solving. Um, and also the, just the concept that you could make a jig for literally anything. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, like, uh, uh, unfortunately. I mean, unfortunately, but not surprisingly, like, they're all men. But, like, and I was just having a conversation with this guy, uh, the guy who was the staff carpenter at the uh, this one summer stock that I worked at um, in Vermont uh, while I was in college. Um, like, that was, that was a very impactful summer for, like, both good and bad reasons. Um, but, like, he was pretty instrumental in um the concept i mean yeah thrown back to you know the concepts of like you know gender in the thing in in theater in the world um of the industry it was because like you know i was still like pretty skittish about like power tools and stuff because i think you know i was this was maybe like the summer after my like sophomore year of college um and so, you know, I think there was one time I must have just been like very intimidated by like the framing nailer. And I was just like, <laughs> but I'm a girl. And he was just like, you're not a girl. You're a carpenter. You can do this. And I was just like, like <laughs> but that like, you know, really, really stuck with me because it's just like, you know, the concept of just like, yeah, like your gender should have no bearing on like if, if you want to do a thing. Like, your gender is not going to be the thing that holds you back. And so, like, you know, summoned my courage and used the framing nailer. And it was terrifying, but I didn't shoot myself with it. So, like, that was a win. Um, so, like, but, yeah, so, like, that was a very, you know, formative summer. Um, you know, owe a lot of credit to that guy. Um, yeah, I think he was he was in a good, you know, place to be that person because you know I think he came from like a smaller college and worked with a lot of you know just like the general theater like you know people pursuing like a general theater degree who had to come through you know do scenery and a lot of them were young women so he was used to working with them um you know and in that thing of like you know <laughs> empowering <laughs> he's right. very good at good and acquainted with empowering young women in the use of power tools and just um, giving him the opportunity i mean really yeah. that's 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 all people want is the opportunity to prove that they can do something whether or not you are successful is up to you but to have the same opportunities as anyone else to Achieve a goal is what we're striving for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think I'm trying to think of if there's anybody else that, I mean, lots of, lots of people have just generally been yeah good, good influences, but like, 
honestly, you know, keep keeping on the the topic, like honestly, just some of my like other female peers where I'm just like, you're also a badass lady, like doing this job and not letting the shit get you down. Yeah. Like, because it's also the thing of like, oh, you get like you know two female stagehands together and they're sharing their horror stories, and I'm like, I heard some doozies from other people, and I'm just like, God bless you for continuing to do this work. Like, yeah. Because it's like, you know, we're all out here getting shit, but I'm like, you know, so I just look at all the people. I'm like, especially, you know, the yeah, the people who are just like kicking ass and taking names and yep. ra- rallying for, <laughs> for for the the greater cause. Absolutely. Um, what is one of what is your professional superpower? And I'm very interested to see what answer you come up with because <laughs> of of your experience and you know <laughs> being being in the business for 14, 15 years is not a short time. Then again, it's not a super long time. So I can understand how people may be like, oh, geez, that's a hard question to a- answer. But that's the point. Well, I ask easy questions. Let's ask the hard ones. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, what's what's your professional so, superpower? You know, I like I definitely know what mine is because um I I use it so often and I you can tell I'm millennial because I want to like describe it as a gif. <laughs> like, <laughs> but because because that is always how it feels and it is the moment the moment in the matrix when Morpheus leans into Neo while he's gasping for air on the ground and he just says, you think that's air you're breathing? And then he makes that face and like leans back. Because I am always the person who's just like, oh yeah, you're going to do that thing? Well, you should maybe think about that before you do it. And then they're just like, oh shit, you're right. (laughs) Perspective. (laughs) You know, because I'm usually just like, you know, hanging out on the periphery, keeping my eyes out for everything. Because I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, being being observant and then just being like, oh, before you before you do that, you should maybe maybe not. But good answer, know. good answer. <laughs> I also had a crazy, you know, kind of like revelation uh, that I can trace a lot of these, a lot of the skills that I use in theater back to uh, being in band in high school. <laughs> And and that that's one of them because of like the thing of, you know, if you're if your conductor is talking to some other section, but you're about to start playing again, then you better be paying attention. Right. So that you're ready to go. And like and that's that I use that a lot in like in load in situations. And, you know, that started from being an overhire. I'm like always keeping an eye out. I'm just be like, oh, I was like half listening to that conversation. I already know what you need. You don't need to tell me. Right. And like people appreciate that. The, the overused term these days is situational awareness. You know what's happening around you and you're prepared to deal with realistic expectations of what's going to happen, mm-hmm. um, which is very important. It's, it, it is important to be observant. Um, I've talked about you know what I think makes me good at doing inspections is my ability to notice uh, a bunch of information and see where the outliers are and see where differences are and be observant. 
is the point is I can look at something and say, I can observe all this stuff and find the things that are not correct. Um, so cool. Well, all right. See, here's a little inside baseball for the listeners. We were joking just before we recorded that we always have anxiety, myself and my guests, about, oh, can we get enough content? And I said, hey, you know, at five, ten minutes, you're like, oh, my God, we've covered so much stuff and we're only five, ten minutes into this. How are we going to get to an hour? Here we are, an hour and 40 minutes in. And we've just <laughs> gone through this conversation so easily. I say an hour and 40 listeners, you know, realize that, you know, recorded a three minutes before we actually started talking. Um, I don't know. I think we've covered a lot of ground and I don't have any particularly, you know, other questions that I would want to ask. Is there anything you want to bring up? Anything we didn't touch about? Um, anything that, uh, you want to yell at me that I, I, you know, <laughs> said something stupid because that's nothing new. Um, uh, yeah, I'll give you the final words. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is that thing of like, yeah, just like if the, you know, if somebody tells you, like, especially if somebody is going to the effort to tell you about something. Yeah, like totally respect that. Um, I'm like, I feel like I'm, you know, not the best example because I'm like, you know, clearly brought up some stuff and I'm like, you know, really don't have a lot of answers about these things um other than just like you know the the thing like the I feel like my primary strategy at this current moment is just to complain about things in the presence of other men to just be like oh man like this thing happened to me the other day and I'm just and like you know I've gotten to the point where I'm like I don't even need the other like <laughs> Don't, don't need a female stagehand to be ripping like riffing off of to like you know just kind of like have a little complaint about stuff because at the very least it's getting the cons like you know it is the airing of the grievance so that it's being put out into the world where it might gain you know a little bit of awareness from other people absolutely so i'm like i feel like that's really you know that's as that's kind of as much strategy as I have at this current juncture is just, you know, putting it out there, demonstrating, you know, the, the frequency of things. But I think it's important for the listeners to recognize that's exactly what brought you and I together to record this episode was <laughs> you, you reached out to me with feedback and if I'm going to hold true to what I'm trying to do, as I said in the beginning, which is to give opportunities to people to communicate with the listeners, then that's what I'm going to do. And sent you a reply and said, hey, so I hear you and I want to give you an opportunity to talk about it. So let's do that. And um, I think we're all going to be better because of that. And it's, again, it's just using that same analogy. It's one little chip out of the big rock, but we're going to get there. Um, and I commend you on, on just reaching out. Cause I think you're right. A lot of people would have said, yeah, and 
maybe have done something different, but you've positively affected change by not not internalizing it. Yeah. I mean, I will fully confess that after you sent your reply, that uh, I was just like, <laughs> did that thing where I'm just like, I mean, I didn't mean that I should talk about it, but also like, clearly I've got some things to say. So like, I mean, I guess why not? <laughs> but that's the point. We all have a voice. We all are allowed to use that voice. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll sum it up this way. I had a friend of mine that I went to college with and we were catching up and uh, had commented about something that I had done on social media that I had spoken out about. And it was like, I was really impressed about you doing that. That had to have been difficult. I basically was, was holding a, a blowtorch to the ass of a bunch of people that I'm associated with. And I was disappointed in the behavior of a bunch of people. And I called him out on it. And, and my friend was like, that had to have been really hard to do that in a public forum for a group that is usually not that very public. And I said, well, I appreciate you supporting me by saying that. And if we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard, then who will? If you do not speak up, who will? And that's the point. So you did. And I, I absolutely respect that. And I grow from it. You grow from it. Hopefully the listeners are going to grow from it. And then our community grows from it. Yeah. I mean, I would love, I would love to love to see that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap things up here for now. As I've said to other people, there's always opportunities to record more episodes and um, you have any last words? Oh, God. I mean, not at, not at this point. That works. That's <laughs> totally fine. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you spending some time with us. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. You have to fill up bigger, as big as can.